the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. So, Gabe, who's on the show today? You told me yesterday that we have Jay Robbins. DJ Robbins. Have, we do have DJ Robbins, that's right. And then you said, get your questions ready. Get your questions ready, Woodward? I have a couple things I'd like to dig into. Yeah, good. But only if the moment comes up. I don't like to just put everything on this concrete, you know, it's got to flow. Mm. Really? Is that your style? Your, <laughs> your interview style? Everything's got to flow. You don't want anything on concrete. Is that what you said? What does that mean? No, in, I don't want to have it in concrete. I want to have it free-flowing. So you've done no preparation again. <laughs> I've got a few topics I'd like to hit if it comes up. If you don't step on my toes first and bring them up before <laughs> I get there. Well, it will come up if you bring it up. We'll see how That's it goes. the whole point. He's going to be here, so you bring up stuff for him to talk about. I mean, he's not just coming here to he's he's not coming here to eat. You know, it's not a restaurant. He wants to talk to you about he knows uh, the drill. He knows the drill, but I don't think he knows the Lifers podcast drill. Not everybody who comes on the show knows Ben and Gabe and Scott. They know you, which is fine. But we gotta <sighs> We got to get them to understand the the dynamic that's going on here. But they know how interviews work. Yeah, but we're three amigos here that just kind of jump in when we can. Hmm. I do, I do. That's my prep. I jump in when I can. All right. Well, you know what? I'm going to hand it off to you. As soon as he gets on, <laughs> I'll I'll just leave. And then you, you run the show. It'll go over like a lead balloon for sure. You had to get that one in, didn't you? Is I that your it. favorite saying? <laughs> yes, it's my favorite saying. <laughs> if I know What's something's going to go what? over. Yeah. Do you, do you know where you first heard that? Well, Scott will tell you that I heard it from Keith Moon talking about Led Zeppelin. Is that what it was? Oh, right. Right, right, right. right. That's the story, right. I got to let my... That's where they got the name Led Zeppelin because Keith Moon says... Sounds like that's going to go over like a lead balloon. That's a good story. So I know I shouldn't fall into the trap of seeking Gabe's approval about anything. 
because mm-hmm. I've been taught that that's like a dangerous a fool's errand. A, a, a fool, fool's errand, losing proposition. But after about a month of mentioning uh, East Beach tacos, whenever I could, and 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 Gabe reaching out and say what, saying to me, "What's the name of that place you told me to go check out?" I believe that Gabe and Heidi actually visited this establishment. Yes. And I know that Heidi was raving about her tacos, and Gabe took a picture of his taco that, to me, looks like the most delicious taco I've ever seen in my life. The tofu taco? It was tofu tacos. Did you see that picture, Scott? I did. I did. I'd rather have have beans in my taco when it comes to tacos or tofu, but they were really good. It was really good. No, No, it was good. It was good. No, 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 it was good. Salsa was good. I I mean, I give it a... Uh, four out of five stars. Right. I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll take that. I'll take yeah, that. That's not bad. That, that, that's, that's, that's a rave. Four out of five? That's, yeah, that's for tacos. Good. I mean, they didn't have anything else, really, for, that I could eat. But They didn't have tamales. No no tamales, no enchiladas. It was just like a, just like a stand. It was like a quick taco stand with some batting cages next door and, and down by Santa Barbara. It was good. What were you doing down there? We went to the beach. We took Josie to the beach, the dog beach. Did you post any pictures of you in your uh, swimwear? I was wearing the same thing I'm wearing now, I think. Flannel shirt, jeans, except I was wearing my Crocs, my open-toed Crocs. When did you start wearing Crocs? When I started walking in dog shit. Did I give a fuck? (laughs) I started walking in dog shit, and I had to throw out my tennis shoes, so I, I got some shoes I can replace quickly if I need them. But Heidi uh, buys me she she buys me sandals when I need them. Shangles? Sandals. I don't know what shingles are. <laughs> Did he say shangles? Yeah, sandals. Shangles, right? Yeah. You said shangles. I don't know what that word is, shangles. Well, it's not shingles, but you don't want to get that either. It's supposed to not be good. Right. And you're you're you know, you, since you're fifty now, you should probably be thinking about that. No, shingles is not on my mind. But what is on my mind is what you... Isn't this the day that you wait for all year, the Oscar nominations? Isn't this your day? Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to talk about it? Uh, I mean, one of my favorite movies is probably going to win. But as far as, far as that list goes, it's like, what? I'm just perplexed by it more mm-hmm. than anything else. West Side Story? Why? Why is that happening? Why is Nightmare Alley on there? Why, why is that happening? Doesn't make know. any sense other than, you know, they want to have former Oscar winners. It's, it's, a, it's a reach around is what it is. But, and, but those two at the... Excuse me. <laughs> at the exclusion of Red Rocket, which uh, can't... Maybe because it's... Maybe it was a non... I think that was a union shoot. I, think that, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you know, I, I, I can't say that I'm completely surprised that Red Rocket didn't get anything, but it just, it just feels shitty. Being the Ricardos, who gives a shit about that movie? Yeah, I don't understand. Don't look up. I keep trying to watch. Don't look up. That's crazy, right? That's insane. It's horrible. 
But I, I'm totally not surprised. I mean, that'll probably, that could conceivably win. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, uh, people, people. What, what, what were you expecting to see on there, Gabe? What's your big X to grind here? I don't have an X to grind. I'm more concerned about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominations than I am Ooh. the Oscar nominations. Why are you concerned about that? Why wasn't Iron Maiden on the ballot last year? Why are they not this year? What's the rules here? What's going on? I don't know. Were they on the ballot last year? I think they, they were. Guess they can only have one metal band a year, so this year it's going to be Judas Priest. Yeah, they'll get snubbed as well. Who's going to put Judas Priest on there? Who's going to say I think Judas, Judas Priest, Priest will get in? No. Judas Priest will get in. Yes, I will predict. I think so. By three a.m. <laughs> I predict that they will not get in. Jay has some Shutter to Think stories, too. I'm sure he does. Speaking of Shutter to Think, I've been on a big Shutter to Think kick. But oh, yeah? What record even before you I knew, oh, I've been listening to that live album. It's called Live from Home or something. But it's really good. Yeah. Really good. It's not bad. Not bad. I was listening to the Discord records not too long ago. Uh, I can't even remember what, the, what it's called. But the one that's purple. Funeral at the Movies. Yeah, that's it. Something like that. That's right. It's going to be a DC-centric show. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but I don't know if so, Jay Robbins is from DC or just works out of DC. or I don't know. I don't know the whole deal. Well, I know he lives in Baltimore now. Oh, but, cool. But uh, you, you could ask him. It's one of the things you should probably ask him. I know. Imagine if he was going to be here and we could find out these kinds of things. Yeah, right. Actually, he's not here. It's all a ruse. That'd be funny if it was. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me who it is, and I get all ready for it, and then boom, you change it, and it's somebody who I don't even know. It's Rick Froberg. So, <laughs> so wait, we are. this is officially now the start of our second year of podcasts. Mm, I thought next year is the officially the start. Well, that I mean, was next we just week. Did, we just had the 52nd episode. But remember, we did two episodes in a week. What was that, that one? First week. We did the pilot episode, and then oh. we had Julianne on. So I'm thinking next week is the year, because it lines up with the dates. Oh, so okay. if we can get Juliana back on the show next week to see if we're any better at this, we, we, we'll try to do that. But next oh. week is a, a year. I feel like... Our anniversary show should be better than the first one when we interview Juliana, if we get her, twice. But I feel like I'm going to be a deer in a headlight again because it's Juliana Hetfield. Did you say you're going to be a beer in the headlight? A deer. Oh. Do I say beer? You are a deer. He you're said thinking... he's he said he's going to try to approach this interview from a different shangle, but he's not sure if he's figured out <laughs> right. that shangle yet. Right. <laughs> I've got spurs that shingle, shangle, jingle. Wow, none of this stuff is usable. <laughs> you guys watching the Olympics? No. You know what? I think you would be good. You'd be really good at curling, but not. I don't think you would be the the curler. You, you would be the person who sweeps Sweeping? up. Yeah, I think you would be really good at that. I could see you. You win a gold for the U.S. <laughs> you just got to get a team going. And There's start. no place to practice.
practice curling. You can't just go to the street and start sliding on the ice and sweeping it like a squirrel. <laughs> like a squirrel? You didn't see that? <laughs> you don't see those cartoons or the, the pictures where the squirrels are curling? The videos on... I, I saw those videos that you're talking about, but uh, they're not squirrels. They're like... Uh, Hedgehogs? Is it Ice Age? No, they're like they're like badgers or no, they're not even they're the huge they're huge. They're not squirrels. <laughs> Those are groundhogs. <laughs> okay. Groundhogs. Maybe there it was go. Groundhog Day when they showed that thing. You don't know what a groundhog is? You know they have a day. Hey everybody, it's Jay Robbins. Uh, how are you, Jay? Uh how indeed. I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Uh you I saw today that you were celebrating John Williams. <laughs> He's ninety. John He's Williams ninety. Birthday? John John Williams turned ninety today. Yeah, it's a That's... big it's a big deal for me. <laughs> that is a big deal. Is he your guy? He's he's one of one of my most important guys. Yeah, from when I was a kid, from the first time I saw Star Wars. Right. So, I mean, what do you think his best work is? Uh, oh God. Uh, I don't know. I no, celebra- I, don't think I celebra- that. I celebrate the whole catalog. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I don't know. Black could... Sunday is is the answer. That's a good obscure one. I like that. Towering Inferno. No, the pi- the piano uh, piano playing on the Peter Gunn theme. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. He did yeah, that, didn't yeah. He? Isn't that isn't that wild? That is. That, yeah. You know, I I've come around to ET, and I think uh, <laughs> ET is such a masterpiece. Like it's almost like a silent movie with his music and like right down to the very end when he, that last timpani hit, you know, it's just, it's all in, in concert with the image. It's, it's crazy. I do know if you watch the, like if you watch the bicycle chase scene without music, it's pretty hurting. All, there's like all this content in the, in a lot of the films that he scores and not just him, but like the really good film score people like, all this kind of unspoken content, all the kind of spiritual, emotional, like internal life, like, like things that you can't just depict with a picture. And like, it's, you know, or like Poltergeist is another one, Jerry Goldsmith's music and Poltergeist. Like if you take that away from that movie, it's so clunky and awkward and crappy and you put the music in and it's like, like this whole other dimension, it gets so much, um, it's so there's so much more because of what the music is contributing. So, I don't know. Well, try to imagine kind of Planet of the Apes without Jerry Goldsmith's score. Right, exactly. I mean, it's I don't know. That's one of my that's one of my top, like, you know, all time favorites. Yeah. Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I mean the film, the first film, and the the score for the film is like so. It's so out there and so exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know what's a great score is Howard Shore's score for the for Crash. That movie I gotta, Crash. I gotta watch that again because the Cronenberg Crash. Yeah, 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 the yeah. Cronenberg yeah. Crash. Yeah, yeah. The only, the only, the only one that matters. The real Crash. Yeah, yeah the good Not one. Not Oprah's Crash. I never like. I was never a fan of like like Howard Shore, like his actual music. I don't really tend to like, but I feel like he he's a really good dramatist. Like he's a great film composer. Like he does a great job 
for the films that he scores. I just don't ever like his music very much. But I haven't I haven't watched this. Crash is another one that should be one of my favorite movies and probably oh, is, but I haven't seen it in, in a while. So the work that he does with Cronenberg is pretty great. Right. They got they got one of those director composer partnerships that's like real yeah. Right. Okay, but yeah. let's settle an exactly. argument right here. Okay, here we go. Cronenberg, the dead zone. Yeah. I love it. Scott is not the biggest fan. Yeah. But I also little, love the a score. Chilly. The score, which is not uh Right, it's Michael Kane. Yes. Yes. I I think that's a beautiful score. What do you think? Yeah, I love that score. I think it's Thank awesome. you. The ice is going to break. <laughs> so you also said the other day you were channeling channeling your inner Fleming Rasmussen. What what what, what was going on there? What are you doing? <laughs> um well, I'm doing I'm mixing I'm in the middle of two different mixes right now that I made the mistake of talking to the bands about them and I'm not allowed to say what they are. Like they're they're re, they're remixes of old records, and they're both going going really well, but I don't think I have permission to disclose what they are because I feel like it's one of those like the bands are re you know reissuing a record from their early days and they're gonna go do a tour to support it and make a big deal out of it. So, but but one so of them remixing Injustice for All. <laughs> Finally. Uh, but anyway, one of them, one of them uh, it just ended up, it ended up making me think about uh, Master of Puppets and how much I love how that record sounds and how, and how, and how weird it is to like be, to like sort of inadvertently, like to be trying to mix this thing that I didn't record that was done quite a while ago. And um, the original mix of it is like pretty raw, but somewhere in there is like, because of the way that I was having to approach it to do certain things, I was like, oh my God, these are sort of, it really put me in mind of this, of, put me in mind of those early Metallica records. And that was a pretty weird place to find myself, but I enjoyed it a lot. So I can't wait to find out what this is. (laughs) Yeah. I got to be mysterious, unfortunately, but the other record is like, the other record is not Fleming Rasmussen at all. And it's really weird because it's, it's something that I, I recorded what it was like the first thing that I did in the uh, big room at inner ear the first record that I ever actually engineered on two inch tape. So I had to go confront my sins of my youth as a, you know, engineer who didn't know what he was doing. And right. sort of like, sort of like 50, 50, like some of it, I'm like, Oh, I did a pretty good job. And some of it, I'm kind of like, okay. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to spin it and go like, Oh, I have grown. I mean, how many times, how many records have you made at Inner Ear? I don't know. I made I made a lot of records at Inner Ear. You know, Inner Ear closed, right? I didn't. I, I would have guessed that it would have, but I, I, I didn't know that. No, it, it closed. Uh, they uh, the landlord basically went into there was like where it was it was in it's it was in Arlington, Virginia, in this kind of weird industrial sort of backwater. But Arlington, you know, is right next to D.C., and it's all, like, super developed, and, and, you know, it's just condos as far as the eye can see. And then there was this one little spot, and there was a neighborhood association, and they wanted to build an arts district, and then the sort of the, the, the city got involved with a developer who was, like, 
Yeah, yeah. Let's build an arts district, as in, like, let's have a beard for more condo development. And um, so instead of supporting the arts stuff that was already there, like Inner Ear, and there were a couple of theaters and weird little grassroots things, um, they just raised the whole, you know, it was about six blocks, I guess, of industrial, uh, sort of mixed industrial uh, real estate. And so anyway, so Inner Ear is gone. It's it's like gone, gone, which, you know, is a pretty huge deal for, for right. DC music. So, um, yeah. But that just, that happened at the end of last year. So I went down in uh, toward the end of the year. I, I had a couple sessions down there, which I hadn't worked down there in a long time. And then I also just went... Um, and there were he had a Don had a storage area with all these two inch tapes, and I found all these projects that I worked on, where the band didn't take the tapes. So I have like uh-huh. I I brought him back up here to Baltimore. So I have just like stacks and stacks of two inch tapes of uh, stuff that I recorded in the nineties at Inner Ear, which was pretty cool. I've been baking baking them and transferring them. <clears throat> so people are still baking. People still do that. Bake the tapes. Yeah, you gotta. You gotta make the tapes. That, why do you have to do that? Uh, because the binder, the uh, scintillating. I know the uh, the binder uh, the um, that uh, fixes the magnetic particles onto the tape. Um, it degrades over time, so you you either get depending on the condition, depending on depending on you know what the chemical makeup of the thing is, like what tape you're actually using from which time it was made, blah blah blah. Um, and then what conditions it's been stored in the tape can either the binder just gives up and the particles sort of turn into dust and just fall off the tape or, mm-hmm. or the binder turns into a kind of sludge that gums up your whole, uh, tape path of your tape machine. So that can be like extremely, extremely bad, uh, and like a real pain in the ass to try and reckon with. So if you bake the tape, if you put it, uh, in like, I use a, uh, uh, like a food dehydrator because you can set it's very low temperature and it's sort of consistent like 135 degrees so um, you set it at a low temperature over a long you know say eight hours and it reactivates the binder enough that it becomes stable and then you can play it so you you know play the tape off into uh, you know your in my case like my Pro Tools system and archive it that way so did you grow up in D.C.? I, I grew up in like just outside DC in in the Maryland suburbs. What was being that close to? Because you know the DC scene is legendary, and like, what was that like? I mean, shows at Nine Thirty Club, Discord, all that stuff. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't know. I came to it from a weird angle, you know, because like, like when I uh, when I got into punk rock, it was because I was in this art class with. Uh, other it was like a gifted and talented art class and uh that took you got to be in art class for half a day so it was like Mm -hmm. paradise and uh and uh so there were punk kids in that class who became who kind of befriended me because i was just more of like a weird i was just like a weird uh sort of disturbed nerd Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh um and you know i was like listening to like John Williams and Stravinsky and a lot of like, you know, it was just into, into stuff that people that normal kids didn't like, 
And so we had this right. kind of o- overlap with, you know, being into like H.R. Giger and uh, J.G. Ballard and stuff. And I think like, um, so those kids kind of rescued me and started taking me to shows. And I was like, oh, like it just opened a whole other world, you know, that I didn't know anything about. Because if it wasn't was for that, I would show? do uh, the first punk show that I went to was uh, Government Issue, Marginal Man and TSOL at the Wilson Center. And uh, it, it really, it really was like, I was like, mind completely blown, you know, but and I never, like, I'm going to play I, bass for those guys. <laughs> I thought it was so funny when I tried out because I was just like, there's no chance in hell that I'm going to get this gig, you know, but I got it. It's crazy. I didn't yeah. even know I had a short scale bass. I didn't even know it was short scale. <laughs> I didn't know it was any different from any other bass. I was just like, this is my, I brought my bass, you know played some joy division bass lines and i i learned like i crammed for i crammed with uh uh damon locks uh who you probably know from chicago um circles um he was one of my best friends in high school and uh he remember going over to his house and like putting on the gi's catalog and like he helped me learn the bass lines off of joyride you know right be like do you think that's right oh yeah yeah no that's right think so well what about this part you know and then um yeah i went over and i have no idea how i got in but lucky me i think maybe uh I, they talked about somebody else who tried out who was like who was real sure he was going to get in so before they even before they even had a jam he was like so when are we going on tour like they were all like and i think that turned them off and meanwhile like i was just kind of like hello mr stab hello, Mr. Lyle, can I play bass now? You know, I was extremely like, I was a little bit in awe and I think they thought that was good. Yeah. 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 Easier to, easier to control. Yes. Malleable, malleable young man with good manners. Well, I mean, that's crazy. So that was the first show and you were, you were, you were hooked and you end up playing bass for them. How much longer after that, seeing that show, did you get that gig? Uh, I saw that show in 1984. It was probably about a year later. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then in that intervening year, though, it was weird because, like, GIs was a band that stayed, like, you know, there was a big thing in DC. There was sort of the unwritten law that if one member leaves the band, the, then it's not the same band, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like if the bass, if the, for most, most of the time with a discord band anyway, like a lineup change just means the band is over and we have a new band. But GIs, right. GIs was not like that. GIs was like, if you played bass and then you left, it's like, hey, that's your loss. We're going to get somebody else in here because Tom and John just really wanted to keep it rolling. You know, they were really driven. They, they, they wanted to keep it, keep it going. So by the time that I tried out, uh, I was the ninth bass player in that band. Although it was, yeah, although it was the longest tenured, I was in the band for about three years. But like, I remember seeing the flyer, you know, GI needs a bass player. Same once again, I was with Damon uh, at Smash, which was like the big punk rock. It was like the punk rock record store in Georgetown, and there was a flyer that said GI needs a bass player, and it was like we kind of laughed about it, like you know, who hasn't played bass in GIs? Right. And then I was like, oh, well, I haven't played bass in GIs. That would be pretty funny, wouldn't it? And um, so it was a little bit like, 
you know, depending who you ask, it was kind of uncool. Like, oh, they're still going, you know. But they were, right. you know, they were awesome. They only just got more awesome. Um, was that the first band you were in? Uh, I played bass in this other band with uh, some friends of friends of mine for like a minute. I had uh, another friend of mine from the, this art class went went off to college, and he knew that I was dying to play bass in a band. So he was like, "You should just take my spot and play in this band, Punchline," and uh, which was just very like kind of Minor Threat influenced thrash band. And we played one show. Um, and then I was going to go back to, uh, I went to film school at NYU for one semester and then I came home and I was broke and I was like, it was summertime and that's when I was like, am I even going to be able to go back to school? And that's when I saw the flyer for the GIs need a bass player. I was like, oh, I'll take a gap year. It turned out to be most of my adult life. Out of that, did you jump right into Jawbox or did you... Uh, I, pl- I played I played bass in Scream for about two months, which was oh, really yeah, which was great. They were I mean that was my favorite band. Like what, what GIs broke up, <clears throat> and and uh, it was right around the same time that Skeeter Thompson left Scream, and I was like, I mean they really were my favorite band. So I went and tried out, and I blew the audition because <laughs> I was super nervous. I was like, Dave Grohl was playing drums. And it was like right after, it was like right after No More Censorship, like right uh-huh. between, or like uh, right before that, uh, oh God, what is that? They did that awesome single on, on. Uh, it was like a Discord single. But anyway, so I tried out and I blew it. And then the other guy who, who tried out uh, was uh, this guy, Ben Pape, who I, who I knew, who ended up playing in Burning Airlines many years later for a minute, but... Um, but so Ben got in and he was like the rock and roll guy. Like for me, I was like, scream was, you know, it was like kind of a hardcore punk kid. Ben was like a, like a bell bottoms, like, you know, leather vest, like rock and roll guy with a Thunderbird. Like he, Mm -hmm. he totally like, and he was an impeccable, like great bass player, really awesome. But anyway, he got in, they went on tour. Uh, they found out that they didn't get along halfway through the tour. They got to LA and he got poached to be in the Four Horsemen. Remember that band? That was no. like it was like the Four Horsemen was a. There was a brief wave of you know Brian Baker had that band Junkyard that was like kind of yeah. southern, southern rock, and then the Four Horsemen was like another southern rock by dudes who used to be in hardcore bands. So it was like Dimwit was the drummer of the Four Horsemen, and um, I think. No, Chris Gates was in Junkyard, right? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So Ben, ben, got, ben got poached to play bass in this band because he had the look. And then he was like, so long, suckers. And I was the only other guy that knew the songs. So Pete Stahl called me. I was working at, at my job as, I was like the shipping clerk at this art supply store. And he was like, Jay, we need you. I was like, all right. So I quit my job and I got on a plane and I was in Scream for two months and it was super fun. But, wow. um, but it was, I mean, I don't know if you're that familiar with Scream, but I mean, their original bass player, Skeeter Thompson, was a pretty important, pretty important ingredient right. in that band. And um, so we we got home from that tour and I played a couple more shows with them. And um, but then Skeeter kind of came back into the picture and I was like, what am I doing? I'm like this young guy who just joins old guy bands like that's not cool. I should have yeah. my own. I should have my own band. 
So that's that was that was the idea. And plus, I wanted to play guitar. You know, I had ideas about the guitar. I was a super terrible guitar player, but I was like, that's punk. I'll start from scratch on the guitar. That's the way it should be. Well, I mean, who were your big influences on guitar? I mean, did you just sort of, did you have anybody or did you just have like this sort of uh, conceptual idea of the guitar? At, at the time, it would have been Brian Baker and Ian MacKay and like mm -hmm. everybody, everybody that I went to go see, all the like DC people, you know, but uh, Franz from Scream. I mean, but, and uh, probably uh, uh, Kenny Chambers from Moving Targets, like, mm -hmm. Um, but then, you know, listening more and more, it, it sort of morphed into like, you know, I mean, now I'm, if I, I mean, always killing joke, probably really like Jordy Walker, probably number one, you know, and Bob Mould should have, like, yeah. he, he should have been top of the list probably, but yeah. yeah. But I mean, your stuff is, I mean, I guess Bob can get angular, but I always think of your stuff as more angular than like maybe a bit more Andy Gill. Yeah, I don't, well, but it's easier. Thinking. It's also, the thing with Andy Gill is like, I like, I mean, it's just, the, like, so here's the thing, right? Like with, to me, like with listening to Husker Du, especially Zen Arcade, because that record was like a role, like, that's a huge record for me. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to play those songs and I'm like, I don't understand how there's so much sound in what, you know, like he just seemed like capable of making melody and rhythm all like layered in like one thing, you know? And at that time, right. I think, I think I wasn't thinking about things like alternate tunings or I don't even know how much of that he would do, but like, I was just like, whatever it was that Bob mold had, particularly on that record, because I just wore that record out, it was always like, I can't find it. I could almost find it, but I can't do it, you know? And But then when you hear somebody like Andy Gill, it's much more approachable because sometimes, like, with him, it's like one note or one sound or one, one like, decisive moment that's just like a noise. Right. And you're, and you're like, and it's like super dramatic and cool, and I'm like, oh, well, I can play one note. <laughs> you know, but I mean, yeah. I was, I was wanted to play like, you know, I, I was wanted to play a much more, um, you know, more like Bob Mould or Franz could do it too. Uh, Franz Stahl, like those kind of voicings where it feels like more than one guitar, you know? Gabe, you played Tongues for me. That was, the, I think the first job. Yeah, that song. was, I think I had the seven inch or, or something. And, you know, my circle of friends back then were, were really into the DC scene and, and, Somehow I come across the Jailbox, you know, grip record. And uh, it kind of just stays, those songs stay in your head for a long time when you hear them for the first time. So, wow. but uh, for some reason, the song Tongues always stood out to me on all of all of the records that she ever made. And I'm like, for, I don't know what it is about this song, but uh, when you say Bob Mould, it, to me, I think of like DC meets Midwest is, is this Jailbox sound a little bit. Yeah, I don't, that's that's. I mean, that's probably pretty credible. I mean, to me, like that was the other thing too. Like when when I got into punk rock, it was always really like I felt like a latecomer. So it's like I knew all these kids that were like really steeped in the DC scene. So people knew they really kind of, you know, it, it was really important to not be a poser. 
That was like a thing that was like so crucial in the 80s, right? Like, so I couldn't like for years, or not for years, but for a long time, I wouldn't even say like punk rock or hardcore or anything. I'd just be like, I was like, I have to be cooler than that. I can't say punk because the wrong person says punk at the wrong time and they're a poser. Like, right. like this horrible, horrible <laughs> teenage, teenage nightmare. But like, um, but, uh, but so I started instead of trying to like dig really deep into like sort of DC lore, I was like, I was like, Oh, I want to know about music that other people don't know about. So I gravitated toward like, I remember hearing big black and like racer XEP and really loving that. And then basically from there getting into like anything that was on Homestead records, naked Ray gun, um, blood sport, like, like every, like, I think because it was sort of removed, like I have relatives, some of my, uh, like my dad's mom lived in, uh, uh, Waukegan, right? So I had relatives, <laughs> it was sort of like not too distant, right? But like, um, so it was like a thing that I had this tenuous connection to, but mainly it was at a time when, you know, not everybody would know about it. So it could kind of be my thing. So I got really into the effigies and I got really excited because I wrote a fan letter to John Kesdy and he wrote me back and he was like, mm -hmm. you, he was like, you should listen to the Stranglers. And I was like, I will listen to the Stranglers. And that was excellent advice, you know? But like, um, so, uh, so, you know, all, like all of those bands of that era of Chicago bands were like hugely influential to me and probably, I think to all of us in the band. Right. But I also heard yeah. some stuff in, in Jawbox that like, like back to tongues. I mean, I was kind of like, this reminds me of the Smiths. This it's reminds a, me of how a, soon is now. It's a know? blatant, it's a blatant Smiths ripoff of the most horrible, like <laughs> horrifyingly direct, like, you know, cause wait, cause remember like that's one of the, cause, cause how soon is now is one of those songs, right? Like you hear it, not like you literally remember where you were the first time you heard it, but that was a pretty striking moment, you know? Yeah. You just be like, yeah, that's so cool. And then, you know, you just go, well, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. But Johnny you know? Marr is one of those guitar players where sometimes you can't figure out what he's doing. And it's yeah. like, what, what is happening there? And I, I think that's what, what happens a lot in, in your stuff. Oh, well, that's, that makes me very happy to hear. There's, did you see the video? He posted some video of maybe it was like a headmaster ritual or something like him playing mm -mm. just sound check. And it's open E. It's open E tuning. And if you put your guitar in open E, you can play the shit out of that song. It's really easy and it's <laughs> awesome. And then you're, you're doing it and you just feel so cool. <laughs> you know? Right. Like if I was thinking about who I study on guitar, like for years now, it's been Jordy Walker, like trying to learn Killing Joke parts. Mm -hmm. And it's so wild because some of his most arresting parts are like, when you learn it, you're just like, the guitar wrote this song. Like, how did this even, this is like, so it's, it's so obvious, but you never would have thought of it. You know, it's just right. Magical. At what point did like the major start sniffing around and, and how was that coming from discord and then having to deal with, you know, talking to majors and having to deal with the, the blowback you know, you must have gotten it worse than anybody. It it wasn't too bad actually, for us. No, in a in a way. I mean, I think 
Yeah, I, I don't think so. I th- when I think of how bad it might have been, I think we were we made it harder on ourselves than anybody really, for the most part, made it on us. Right. Because because we did really value our DIY thing. You know, we really like <clears throat> like Discord Records and the idea of this genuine underground had re- it really meant a lot to us yeah and so um i think we just felt like you know and also we were we were we just were insanely lucky basically is what happened because like the guy that signed us to atlantic was mike gitter who was we knew him from his he was like a hardcore kid in boston you know kim knew kim grew up in new hampshire she used to go to shows in boston all the time she knew gitter from he had this fanzine triple x you know he had bands he we knew loads of people in common he just he really understood you know he was the same as us so it was Mm -hmm. like it wasn't like some cigar chomping jerk it was like that's gitter you know we already know him and he already knows us and um so i think we were just like uh, i just think we sort of felt like we would be foolish on the one hand, we'd be foolish not to take advantage of an opportunity to do to sort of open a door to this new, new thing and see what we could do. And on the other hand, we were all like pretty stressed out about not, um, like we really didn't want to feel like we, you know, we didn't want to sell out. We wanted to yeah. sell out. We wanted to sell out without selling out, <laughs> you know. Right. And not actually that we wanted to sell out. It's just we were like working really hard on our band where it was like 24 seven, that's what we were doing. So we're like, Oh my God, is this a chance to like, you know, make a living from our band? How could Mm -hmm. we, how could we do that? If we could do that without, um, if we could do that and sort of bring along all the things that we care about, then we should do that. And we just lucked out like insanely compared to almost everybody that I can think of just for time you know like we just got that we were in that golden moment where atlantic all the majors didn't understand what they were trying to sign but they were just they were just worried that if they didn't scoop up all the bands then they'd miss out you know they'd be leaving money on the table but they didn't know what to do so they were like well the band knows what to do. Let's let the band, we just got, we just, it, we threaded the needle. I don't think we realized how much we did that because we just got to call every, sh- every shot. And that was, that was our condition for signing was like, if we can do everything exactly the way we want to do it, the same way we've been doing it up till now, but just have some of your money Atlantic records to do it with. Right. Like that's what we'd like to do. And then we just got to fucking do it. Like, it's crazy. So, you know, and then, and for, for, by our standards, it was a, um, quite successful, you know, but by Atlantic Records standards, uh, after a certain period of time, why it was actually (laughs) revealed to be an abject failure, (laughs) you know, like, cause it didn't, cause it wasn't, you know, we, we did not become household names, but we, we did, we did pretty good out of it. I mean, you did pretty good, but it's, it's crazy when you think about like, like, I mean, you guys had hooks, and and that record, those records you made for them are great records. But you know, some of the bands that 
those labels would sign. It's like, how could you ever think anybody was going to buy this this stuff? You know, but it was like, but like it was like Hollywood in the '70s where the inmates were running the asylum. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I beg to differ. I don't think we could have written. I thought, I thought we, I mean, like for your own special sweetheart, which is supposed to be our sort of hit record. That's a. Uh, abrasive as shit that's a like (laughs) you know like it's not that's not a record that says like you know it's not a pop record you know no but not even a rock record it's a you you know know, it 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 does have hooks you know you the songs get in your head well i mean that's all a hook is right i mean good you know (laughs) that's hopefully that's the goal i hope but you know but i mean i'm sure you must have had the same i mean you had you were at a higher height i think in your major label you know in that that like the sort of golden moment that everybody had or that you know yeah but i i I don't think we had the pressure on us that that i imagine that you guys had you know what because of coming from the discord think coming from the underground or whatever i think that yeah i think that i mean there were a few people kim likes to tell the story about you know somebody wrote sent us a letter that said they hope we die in a fiery van accident, you know, that's like her Kim's, Kim's favorite story. But for the most part, the thing was like, like we were, our, like part of our deal, you know, like I, like the great, one of the cool things about punk to me is that there's no difference between the band and the audience. Right. Uh And, and like, we really, believe that you know i mean okay not everybody is going to write a good song or not everybody is a born to make music or whatever but basically mm-hmm. um you know so we just always ran our band that way like you know we didn't sort of disappear and and turn into some we were never we were just like we liked hanging out like we were fucking stoked that anybody likes our band you know and it's people like you go on tour to go travel around to different places that you'd never get to otherwise and meet people you'd never meet. Like it's people, it's all just people. Right. So, so we, I think that people that were into our band were, um, they had a, an understanding of where we were coming from, you know, and that we weren't sort of trying to sort of stab them in the back and sell out. We were just trying to keep doing our band and, have some more resources to do it with. So I feel like, I feel like we had a good connection with people. Like the majority of people did not, you know, sort of turn on us, you know, because we quote unquote sold out. But, and even in DC, I think there was an, you know, I mean, there was largely an understanding that, you know, we weren't trying to turn our band into a product, you know, into, into like widgets to be sold. We were just right. trying to see what the next thing was to carry on doing what we were doing the way we wanted to do it. So, you know, not like, not like everybody was in love with the idea, but I think, you know, like I said, I, I mean, we were, we were very fortunate the way it all panned out. So I did, but, but there was, but there was a lot of pressure, but it was, I think it was internal pressure. Self-inflicted. Yeah, totally. What do you got, Gabe? Gabe's <laughs> got a lot of questions. Well, at some point, instead of playing in the band job box and, and writing all the music and all that stuff, you, you started recording other bands. 
and it wasn't too far in between there because I'm looking at your your history of of credits you have, and you're like the who's who producer, engineer, whatever you want to call yourself, of a lot of pretty big records in my in my category in my collection. But like, like was that always in your in your future to record bands and stuff like that? No, I don't know. I never knew what my future was. <laughs> I didn't. I've never had plans, you know. Like, I was just sort of blundered from one. Not blundered, but like, like I remember. I just remember, right? If I, I, I remember, like, listening, like being a kid and listening to the Star Wars soundtrack with headphones, and being like, like seeing the orchestra. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Oh, the like the violins are over on my left, and there's a dude in the back wailing on the timpani, kind of back right hand side, and there's French horns kind of in front of him, and like, like that landscape, this this like, kind of being able to visualize where things were in the space of a recording, that like, I was hooked on that from the minute that I ever put headphones on, and then, um, so I probably listened to records that way when I sort of moved over and started listening to like, you know, weird rock and roll and then more, you know, regular rock and roll or whatever, like Beatles records and stuff. I always, that the spatial part of it, the arrangement part of it, textures and stuff was always super important to me. And then I remember when GIs, when we did our first, uh, the first record I made with them being in the studio and I was such the new guy, like I wasn't even in the control room. I was in the lounge like I was done, but I wouldn't go home because I was just like, and like looking in the control room and like every, like the live or everything, where's, where are the microphones, everything about it. I was just like, oh, something good is going on here. And always anytime that I would re- be in the studio with like Jawbox or BIs or anybody, I would just be hassling the engineer. We're like, why, why, are you, why would you do that? What's this for? What's that? You know, like I was that guy. And, and then I just, uh, I was just lucky that, um, when we made the, uh, when we made for your own special sweetheart, um, there were other bands that heard that record that liked it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, if you want to maybe, you know, I was in a position to suggest, Hey, come to the same studio. And, you know, in the case of like, Texas is the reason they, they approached me because I was in Jawbox and they like they were Jawbox fans, and they they were like, you know, what would you think about producing our record? And I was like, hell yes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, let me think about it. Yes, you know. So, where did you record that? Uh, I did not record it though because I wasn't an en- I didn't know what I was doing as an engineer yet. So Drew Mazurik, who was the engineer on For Your Own Special Sweetheart, he was the engineer that I worked with when I started quote unquote producing. But we did it. Uh-huh. We did it, uh, Texas, at the same place we did for your own special sweetheart, which was a studio here in Baltimore called Oz, uh, which is now the space where I have my current studio, the Magpie Cage. So I was able to move my studio into this place, which is my favorite, favorite, favorite live room anywhere ever. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's like uh, when I started working on records, um, I did the, the Texas record there and uh, first Kerosene 454 full length and a band called Edison, a band called Flu 13, um, 
really excellent Japanese band called Knot. Um, and we did some other stuff. We did some Burning, Burning Airlines stuff there, too. But, yeah. And then sort of gradually I sort of weaned myself off of working with engineers because I was I just couldn't it sort of bugged it bugged me a lot actually just being a quote unquote producer you know that's just uh-huh. like <laughs> like a guy with an opinion in the room like that you need more of those you know so did you say one did you say to me once that you got the Pony Express records tapes I f- at at I found I found a bunch of tapes um but I wasn't able to hang on to them it was before I moved into the space Saw a whole bunch of old, a lot of stuff that Ted nicely worked on. Um, and it was a very dodgy situation. And it was, it was the first time I looked at the, the space that I'm in now. Um, the building had just changed hands and the new owner was, I wanted to talk to him about moving a studio into there, but I hadn't had my own studio at that point. And I was like, really, I was, I was not ready to make the move. So I, I went uh-huh. and talked to him. And I, he was showing me the space, but I was showing him the space because this was a place where like had a, like a lot of emotion invested, right? And he's just like a right. dude that owns a giant building. He doesn't he doesn't yeah. care. And I'm like, no, no, this was a recording studio, and here's the room where the musicians would play, and here's the room where this would happen, and here's how we would do this. And then we open up a closet in the back next to the fucking water heater, and there's just just shelves full of two inch tapes. Including for your own special sweetheart masters, wow. multi-track masters, and um, all of which, all of these tapes, I'm like, you know, what you think is that the label, especially a label like Atlantic Records, right? They make such a big deal out of like contract contractually right. owning the materials or whatever. Like they have some big Indiana Jones vault where they keep all the stuff, right? But apparently it's good enough for Jawbox to just keep the tapes next to the water heater in the studio for several <laughs> decades. So I, so I flipped out and I, I was able to get our tapes, but there was a whole thing with like the tenant that was in there and the new landlord didn't want to, like, he wanted the tenant out because the dude was super shady and the shady tenant dude was like, I own everything that's in this like he was trying to take doorknobs, electrical fixtures, everything. He's like, anything that's not the walls and the roof is mine, right? And and right. his deal with these tapes was he was going to sell them for, to be reused. And oh. and so I started taking like I met the owner of the building, and I started uh, I, I I arranged to meet him really early at like 5.30 in the morning and these tapes were all had all been moved from next to the water heater to a giant pallet on the shipping dock and they were all wrapped in plastic and I went around with my little knife and I was looking for our tapes because I, I basically sobbed to the owner I was just like look seriously this is an important part of my life that's like right here I had no idea that this, what, that this would still be here so right. he was like okay I'll help you out right so I'm going around and like, I take out a tape out of the stack and I got maybe seven reels out of this giant pallet. And he goes, that's about enough. That's starting to look like something's missing. And he, he was like, I can't get into it with this tenant guy. I just want him out of my life. So, mm-hmm. so I basically got our record 
and a whole bunch of other stuff I couldn't get, which sucks. But luckily, so just to save a little bit of face, I did find out that there was a safety of Pony Express record. There is a duplicate there that's on, I don't know what it, if they put it on like high eight or like a whatever, whatever their digital backup was in the nineties. So the label has a copy like Craig Wedern told me there's, there is the multi-track exists, but the original two inch tapes do not exist anymore. Ah, oh, Jesus. Yeah. So that's not what you're remixing. That is not what I'm remixing. No. <laughs> that record does not need a remix. Oh, no, it doesn't. Right about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we think all of our tapes went up in that uh, universal fire. Oh, fuck. So it's a real bummer. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's horrible to contemplate. But, I mean, I did remix. It's a, I had a great experience of remixing a record that I was super, super formative to me, which was... Um, do you know this band Black Market Baby? Do you ever hear of them? They were yeah. they were a, a a real pivotal kind of early DC punk band, sort of a crossover. In they weren't really a hardcore band. They were uh-huh. more of more like a punk band, but such a classic band, like really awesome, awesome band. And um, and I got to remix uh, their album Senseless Offerings, which was like a was like a really important like what is punk record when I was a teenager, you know, like, like yeah. these are the records you will need to find out about punk, you know? And I got to, and yeah. I got to remix it last year and um, I don't know when it's going to be reissued, but I was so stoked. But what was crazy is it's a one inch eight track. The drums are on two tracks. There's barely any mixing to be done. There's one guitar, <laughs> right? And the tape, right. the tape was in a storage space like it had mold all over it so it's like there's plenty of songs where the symbols just drop out and it just kind of goes like this you know and they and and i was like are you sure you want to sure you want me to work on this and they were like yeah sounds fine i'm like all right cool so it was fun it was fucking awesome but it was it was pretty wild just to think about like a lot of classic record like something like pony express record where it's you know there's 24 tracks and you know it's where like there's no track sheets for the sweetheart record so there's some things where i don't know there's a whole bunch of room mics and i'm like what even is this i don't even know you know but um it's just weird thinking about how like i think about it in connection to those beatles remixes that that giles martin did right like what is the master because everything is like dubbed and bounced and transferred so where how do you even begin to sync the like to get a multi-track master to remix Dear Prudence or whatever it is? Right. How do you separate the things that they've bounced down? Right. Or do you go back to or do they go back to all the original individual like passes because they've saved, they've archived everything, unlike Atlantic Records next to the water heater? <laughs> like Yeah. Right? <laughs> but like No, I don't figure I can't figure it out either. Yeah. It's inc- it's incredible to me. I mean, the, the whole, that whole thing, I don't, I, nobody wants to probably, you know, have a discussion about get back, but like, but that, that whole thing just kind of like, I, uh, it, it, it filled me with wonder. I like, I, I loved it. I loved it. I know, I don't even want to talk about it, but 
I will no, say, but fine. I will say this: every you come to the every right time place. the little every time the little orange credit line comes on, you know they're playing. You've seen them play this song like sixteen times, uh-huh. and it's like kind of there, but this it's kind of shitty, right? But it's still, and they're doing it, and they're all bored. And then it says, "This is the version on the record." Yeah. Every yeah. time, I'm just like, oh, "Wow." Yeah, man, it's that is great. Yeah. And uh, I ran into some. Oh, Go just ahead. and especially when you know that it's like, like John Lennon is sitting there making faces at Paul McCartney the whole time, you know, or like they're truly hating it and it's all in a room all together at the same time or on a fucking roof. Like, how does it even sound that good? Like it just, I don't know. I I really, I I love it. And I realize it's the provenance of middle-aged white men to, you know, (laughs) talk about it over and over and over again, but it's, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) It is awesome. And I don't care. How, how lame it is. I was ran into some dude last night and he's like, yeah, I'm not a Beatles fan. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, dude, no, you're wrong. You are, you just don't realize it yet. And I'm like, I said, being a Beatles fan, there's, it, it's a really good time right now. He's like, well, what are you talking about? I'm like, stuff keeps coming out. Stuff that you never thought you'd be alive to see. It's like, it never ends. Never. Well, I think just the, the appreciation of the fact that it's, that it's people, you know, that it's not like, because when I was a kid, I remember being, it's like, this is an element. It's not humans. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a pre-existing, ubiquitous background element that everybody agrees is good, you know? And it's also good. Yeah. Like, I liked it, but it wasn't, it wasn't people making music. Right. It was like the Beatles is some other thing. But so, right. so seeing it like this, it's like, oh shit, it's just a band. It's like when it, like, I mean, I felt this way going to see Killing Joke when I finally saw them, um, whatever the tour was a couple of years ago. And I was like, you know, they weren't perfect. They were like a little right. sloppy and jazz was singing a little flat and like, and it was just awesome. I was like, oh my God, they're a band. Like, you know, cause that's how I am about Killing Joke. Killing Joke is like the Beatles to me. They're, they're, they're right. up there for me. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, it's just a band. They're like kind of they're kind of like pushing and pulling and shit's a little bit flying around out of tune. And, you know, that song didn't go so well tonight, did it? You know, but right. it was still great, you know. Yeah. So how did you get mixed up with uh, Andy Gerber and Million Yen? Um, through Jeff Dean. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's because I think that's true. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think because that makes sense. Yeah, because Jeff, I think it was when, oh God, I'm, I should be punished for not remembering accurately, but I think it's the first time I worked with the bomb. Um, okay. When I talked to Jeff Dean about uh, recording the bomb, and we did a bunch of stuff at Million Yen. And yeah. I love Million Yen. It's awesome. Yeah, that's good. I've been there a couple of times. <laughs> Is that is that the missing link and how you two met between Andy Gerber? Because you know, for people that listening on the podcast, Jay Robbins produced, mixed. You mixed the Lifers album. You mixed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah was that the? Well, Andy had been. He was like, you know, you should, uh, you should make a record with Jay. You should do something. I don't know why you haven't done anything with Jay yet. He was always pushing that, and so we. we God, that's awesome. Went to <laughs> go see you guys play at. At the Metro, the the Jawbox shows. Yeah, uh, I guess that was was that your the last date of that tour? 
at the match. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I think we knew we knew that we should end in Chicago because we just love Chicago so much. But yeah, it was good. You guys are going back out. Yeah. Yeah. How does it feel? Uh, I don't know. Probably like, <laughs> I don't know how it feels yet. It feels pretty like, right now it feels pretty great. I mean, we uh, right. uh, Bill's not playing with us anymore, which is a pretty significant change. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, my friend Brooks Harlan, who I've been playing with for 10 years, he's been the, more than 10 years. I mean, he's been the bass player in my last, he played bass on my solo record. He played bass in my band Office of Future Plans before that. He has a, mm -hmm. uh, he builds amps, um, plays guitar in War on Women. Um, but his, his amp shop is in the front of the studio. He's just like one of my favorite, favorite people and that I've, I've known since moving to Baltimore. Yeah, he's just like fucking ace individual. So he's playing guitar with us now. That is all like the actual being a band and playing songs and having practices and sort of getting ready for a tour part of it is going awesome. I have no, right. I've, but the other day I was like, I was like, Oh now. And we didn't even know we were, we were going to go play on the West coast with jawbreaker in um, March. And we, we knew about the shows for a long time, but there was some reticence about whether they were actually going to happen because of COVID so they were even like confirmed, but it took a long time to announce them because maybe they would be pushed back and we didn't know. Right. So the beginning of the year, I was just like despondent because I'm like, we have, a, we have a lot of really good stuff planned for this year that mostly is kind of held over from what would have been happening in 2020. And like right. we're supposed to play Primavera in, uh, in June in Europe and, and then do some Europe dates. And there's a, bu there's a bunch of stuff that's great. And in January, I was like, none of it's going to happen. You know, the minute when, when Omicron happened, or I can't even remember which variant, if it was Delta or whatever, but I was just like, all right, so this year that was going to be great is going to be another fucked year. And then we got the confirmation that the Jawbreaker shows were happening, and it was like euphoria, you know? Yeah. But last week I was like, oh, my God, I got to get on a plane. I got to get on a plane. <laughs> we're going to fly to the West Coast. We're, we're playing in Colorado. We're going to fly to Colorado, fly back, like... You know, whatever. But yeah. right, have you been out a lot? I or have you been just not at all? I've, I not haven't been. All. You know, when you guys played and I and I emailed you and I was like, yeah, I'm. I literally can't make myself leave the house. You know, I was. I was yeah, which sucked. And and it's still <laughs> like, yeah, I haven't been to the only shows I've been to are outdoor shows. So which I went to a couple. There's a there's a really cool thing. Um, there's a there's a. Uh, this architect and his family who have a house in Baltimore city in this kind of like just a nice, like fancy sort of suburban feeling neighborhood. And they do shows in their living room. And I've seen some of the best shows in like Mark Eitzel played there. Or John Vanderslice played there. Uh, um, who else I've seen there? Uh, Jason Narducci. I've seen him there a uh -huh. couple of times. Like, so, and they've started doing, instead of doing it in their living room, um, they have this kind of big sort of park area that all the houses sort of cooperatively manage. So they have these right. outdoor shows. So we saw Jason. That's the only show, uh, whenever that was, last fall maybe, we went out and saw Jason play. And it was, it was great because it was outside. 
<laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, you know, whatever. Got to get over it. I'm just trying not to think about the contingencies. If, like, how how wrong it could go. Because I think if I think about that, then we won't do anything. And that's that's not that's acceptable. Right. So, no. yeah. So, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, those shows that you're doing in New York sound sound really exciting too that's I, I that we had to learn a lot of songs for those shows yeah so which which will be it's pretty weird there's a lot of stuff that's hard to go back to like it's hard so one night is discord records and then the next night is your own special sweetheart and then the third night is is the uh, last of self-titled record the last but they're not but they're not strictly we decided not to be strict about them because there's some songs like there's some songs we can't like we won't do without bill you know, there's mm -hmm. not a lot of them. There's probably two that are definitely Bill songs and we can't do them. Um, right. But then, and then there's also ones that, you know, I don't know, rather than being sort of doctrinaire about, you know, it's just this record or just that record, like, it, you know, just have a little bit of latitude and play songs that, just make sure that we play songs we enjoy every night but but that's the idea and so it's weird because a lot of the discord era like real early stuff we've haven't we didn't learn for 2019 and we don't we still we're starting to learn like i just relearned tools in chrome which is our, the first song that we ever wrote and which is like it's got a lot of e <laughs> e e e, f e features yeah, yeah. e features yeah. prominently in that song <laughs> as a beginning guitar player e was well within my grasp the e majestic yeah. e chord but uh so it's weird it's 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 as weird revisiting that stuff as it was to revisit the other stuff in 2019 after you know 2018 after 25 years or whatever you know looking at the lyrics are there certain things that keep coming up in those and you're thinking well what was that kid thinking yeah oh my god <laughs> yeah you just described the entire experience basically yeah. but it's kind of cool because it's like that's how i that's how i thought i hit real hard on myself about lyric writing because i never used to i used to hide out in my lyrics a lot i would just be like i would want i would take pains to not be understood and right. um, and i started to think of that as a liability major liability so i'd be i was like super unforgiving about all that stuff for a long time i was just like ah, it's garbage and then, you know, over time, I sort of warm back up to it. And I'm like, no, you know what? There's ideas in these songs, and some of them are actually good, you know? So it's like getting to know, it's like getting to forgive my younger self for, for, for the sin of being young, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these, these shows where you revisit the old records, it, it's therapy. It's like, a, you know, it's kind of therapy that people pay you for. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know. But you've, like... I don't know. I feel like you're, you've been like an actual songwriter much longer than I've been. Like I haven't, I wouldn't, I didn't admit to myself that I was trying to write songs. I was the guitar player in the band who also sang and who just couldn't let other people have their way. <laughs> but I wasn't, I was for a long time. You know what I mean? I would be like, yeah, but actually I have this idea that we should do it this way. And that's really the way we should do it at the end of a whole group process right? it was just like insufferable nightmare. And then eventually I was like, <laughs> if I just admit to myself that I'm trying to be a songwriter, it would just go easier for everybody. You right. know? <laughs> so, and then, and then the next step is like, maybe if you're writing songs, you want people to understand what you're talking about. 
so maybe you should have a point of view and like actually be more clearly articulate about it you know communicate right it's like you're trying to communicate something so you know right right. gabe you got any other questions oh i've got a couple more (laughs) uh I, I guess I would like to know what, what your impression was when you first heard the Deftones play Savory. Oh, I was so blown away. I fucking, are you kidding me? That's incredible oh, yeah. to me. <laughs> it's in, it still blows my mind. It's great. I really like, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit unreal. It's crazy. Right. I thought, I actually That's... thought of that the other day because I went and there's this studio, this kind of sort of, I went and met these dudes who work at this there's a studio kind of outside of Baltimore and whatever. I was trying to like 2022. I'm trying to, I want to have like a goodwill tour where I actually make more of an effort to meet other people that are doing recording in, in Baltimore. Cause I think it would be good. And so anyway, I was talking to these guys and who are quite a bit younger than me and who to whom Jawbox means nothing whatsoever. And they were, we were just talking about, you know, what's, you know, one guy's like, you know, I'm like, oh, so are you, I know them a little bit. I'm like, are you playing any at all? Like, is what's your band doing? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so he's like, well, what are you up to? And I'm like, well, my band's going to play on the West coast. Like, and so the one guy was like, what's your band all about? And I was like, what are the touchstones that I could, you know, what would, what would contextualize it appropriately for him? Mm-hmm. And I would like, that's one of the touchstones. I'm like, no one gives a shit who the, at large who Jawbox is. But if I say, yeah, I had a band and the Deftones covered our song, they would, they would know. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Which is just crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I haven't even heard the, the Deftones cover. It's really, I mean, it's really good. The guitar is super, the guitars are super dark. It's really like, I mean, bruh, real like a lot of low end in the guitars, but yeah, yeah they Deftones did yeah. up. Yeah. But otherwise it's a pretty faithful cover version. I can, I can see it, but wait, I haven't heard it, but I can see it. I got it. a question though. So what, okay. so what, why don't you like Nightmare Alley? Oh, I don't mind it so much. The thing that, that I don't understand is, um, he wins an Oscar and then, this is I just don't see Guillermo del Toro in that movie. I don't oh, wow. see his personality in it. And and I, I saw the did you see the color version? Or the I, black saw, and white I saw I saw the color version. I think the black and white version actually works better. It's certainly more beautiful to look at. It's already a beautiful looking movie. Um have you seen the original? No, I need to go back and, and watch it. I know like a lot of a lot of it's people I know are like yeah. Yeah, I th- I thought it was phenomenal. I thought all the ac- the acting was great. I loved the uh, the whole kind of like the production design. Um, I I mean, there's not much. I even loved the weird pacing of the the way that it developed. I thought is very sort of Guillermo. It's I thought it was. I hated Shape of Water so much. I hated it. I don't. Ha- I don't. I thought Shape of Water was great. Awful. I- <laughs> uh, it's not awful. I love the the musical sequences and everything. I just when it became a musical, I was like, "Oh my god, I love this movie." As a kid who put together his fair share of Creature from the Black Lagoon Revell model kits, I still could not love Shape of Water. Though I'm totally with uh, you on that. What do you think, Gabe? You like the you like the Fishfucker movie? 
I saw a creature from the Black Lagoon on the Son of Svengoolie with the 3D <laughs> sun, sun, uh, glasses. I didn't see yeah. Shape of Water. No, that's good. <laughs> you got any other questions? Oh, I'd like to bring up the last point that I was going to bring up, and you, you, you told me to hold my horses or whatever, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Jay, the term, I'm going to give you a term, and you tell me if you love it or hate it or never want to hear it again. Post-hardcore. <laughs> I, I this is your Barbara Walters moment, Gabe. Yes, is, is you're, trying, you're trying to get him to cry. No, no, no. Uh, I, I feel like the word is kind of like the dude who made up the word heavy metal or, or punk or something. It's just a, w- a way to make things all come into a, a one little basket. But do you like the term? Do you hate the term? Do you? No, I find indifferent? it's useless. I mean, all that language is useless, really. You know, like. I, I, I mean, it's you know, it's fine. I mean, I don't, e- I don't even like music, you know. <laughs> like the vast majority of it, I don't really. Just I just like, I like a, a little bit of it a lot, <laughs> you know. But in the out of all the music that ever was, like, uh, most of it, I could take it or leave it. Gabe, are you going to ask him to weigh in on the ultimate question? You talking about? Uh, well, I, I think he's going to pick your side versus my yeah, side. Yeah, this is this is interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know which way Jay's going to go on this. It's, it's the ultimate so, question. Go ahead, Scott. So, so Jay, Ben, and Gabe have been having this uh, long-running game that they play on this show, and uh, you're the latest contestant on it. And uh, Ben is on one side, and Gabe is on the other, and here it comes. Oh, I get the. Give him the, the the guess, the question. That's right. Okay, replacements or Iron Maiden? Replacements. Yeah, no, <laughs> I know. That's all right. I'll forgive you. <laughs> I'll forgive you. No, I'm I'm a I'm a priest guy. You did it, Gabe. You embarrassed me. <laughs> <laughs> Damn! 